crackdowns, zero days, and TikTok porn. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, please excuse my voice. I am sickly, but I feel mentally sharp. Excellent, Doug. Now, I hope you had a good week off, and I hope you did some great Black Fridaying. Again, I have too many kids to do anything enjoyable. They're too young, but uh, we bought we got a couple of things on Black Friday over the internet because uh, I don't know, I can't remember the last time I've been to a retail store, but uh, one of these days. I'll make my way back. I thought you were over Black Friday ever since you got thwarted for a Nintendo Wii back in the 18th century, Doug. That's true. Yes, that was the uh, <laughs> waddling up to the front of the line and some lady saying, you need a ticket, seeing how long the line was and saying, okay, this is not for me. <laughs> the ticket was presumably just to get into the queue. Then you'd find out whether they actually had any left. Yeah, and they didn't. Spoiler. So... Sir is only joining the pre-queue. Yeah. Going, so I didn't uh, feel like fighting <laughs> yeah. a bunch of people. So all those images you see on uh, on the news, uh, that'll never be me. Uh, we like to start uh, the show with a This Week in Tech History segment. We have a double feature this week, Paul. On November 28th, 1948, the Polaroid Land Camera Model 95 went on sale at the Jordan Marsh Department Store right here in Boston. It was the first commercial instant camera back in 1948. And then one day and several years later, November 29th, <laughs> 1972, Atari introduced its first product, a little game called Pong. When you announced your intention to announce the land camera as tech history, I thought it was 1968. Maybe a little bit earlier, maybe, you know, the late 50s, the sort of Sputnik era, that kind of thing. 1948, eh? Wow. Great miniaturization for that time. If you think of how big computers still were, it wasn't just that they needed rooms. They kind of needed their own large buildings. And here was this almost magical camera. Chemistry in your hand. My brother had one of those when I was a little kid, and I remember being absolutely amazed by it. But not as amazed, Doug, as he was when he found that I'd taken a couple of pics redundantly just to see how it worked. Because, of course, he was paying for the film, (laughs) 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 which was not quite as cheap as the film for regular cameras. (laughs) No, sir. Our first story is another historical type story. This was the Christmas tree worm in 1987, also known as Chrisma Exec, which was written in the Rex scripting language, R-E-X-X. I'd never heard of this before. It drew an ASCII art Christmas tree and spread via email, causing massive disruption to mainframes the world over and was kind of a uh, precursor to the I love you virus, which affected IBM PCs. I think a lot of people underestimated both the extent of IBM's networks in the 80s and the power of the scripting languages available, like Rex. You write the program in just plain old text. You don't need a compiler. It's just a file. And if you name the file eight characters, thus Christmas, not Christmas, although you could type Christmas because it would just ignore the S. If you gave the file name the extension EXEC, so Christmas space exec, then when you type the word Christmas at the command line, it would run. Should have been a warning shot across all our bows. 
but I think it was felt to be a little bit of a flash in the pan. Until a year later, then came the internet worm dug, which of course attacked Unix systems and spread far and wide. And by then, I think we all realised, uh-oh, this viruses and worms scene could turn out quite troublesome. So yeah, the Christmas exec, very, very simple. He did indeed put up a Christmas tree, and that was meant to be the distraction. You looked at the Christmas tree, so you, you probably didn't notice all the little signs at the bottom of your IBM 3270 terminal showing all the system activity until you started receiving these Christmas tree messages back from dozens <laughs> of people. And so it went on and on mm. and on. A very happy Christmas and my best wishes for the next year, it said, all in ASCII art, or perhaps I should say EBCDIC art. There's a comment at the top of the source code. Let this exec run and enjoy yourself. And a little further down, there's a note that says, browsing this file is no fun at all, which obviously, if you're not a programmer, is quite true. And underneath it says, just type Christmas from the command prompt. So just like modern macro malware that says to the user, hey, macros are disabled, but for your extra safety, you need to turn them back on. Why not click the button? It's much easier that way. 35 years ago, <laughs> malware writers had already figured out that if you ask users nicely to do something that is not at all in their interests, some of them, possibly many of them, will do it. Once he'd authorised it, it was able to read your files. And because it could read your files, it could get the list of all the people you normally corresponded with from your so-called nicknames or names file, blasted itself out to all of them. I'm not saying I miss this time, but there was something oddly comforting 20 years ago, firing up Hotmail and seeing hundreds of emails from people that uh, had me in their contacts list and just knowing that something was going on. Like there's a worm going around clearly because I'm getting uh, just a deluge of emails from people here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And people you'd never heard of for a couple of years. Suddenly they'd be in your, all over your mailbox. Okay, let's uh, move right along to this new, uh, the modern day, and uh, this TikTok Invisible Challenge, which is um, basically a filter in TikTok that you can apply that makes you seem invisible. So, of course, the first thing people did was, why don't I take off all my clothes and see if it really makes me invisible? And then, of course, a bunch of scammers are like, let's put out some fake software that will uninvisible naked people. And uh, do I have that right? Yes, sadly, Doug, that's the long and the short of it. And unfortunately, that proved a very attractive lure to a significant number of people online. You're invited to join this Discord channel to find out more and to get going. Well, you have to like the GitHub page. So it's all this self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereby that part of it is, uh, I hate to use the B word, but that, that aspect of it is almost be worthy because you're you're legitimizing this illegitimate project just by everyone upvoting it and, and getting absolutely it. upvote it first and then we'll tell you all about it because obviously it's going to be great because free porn and the project itself is all a pack of lies it just links through to other repositories and that's quite normal in the open source supply chain scene they look like legitimate projects but they're basically clones of legitimate projects with one line changed that runs during installation, which is a big red flag, by the way, that even if this didn't have the sleazy, undressed people who never intended it porno theme in it, you could end up with legitimate software genuinely installed off GitHub, but the process of doing the installation 
satisfying all the dependencies, fetching all the bits you need, that process is the thing that introduces the malware. And that's exactly what happened here. There's one line of obfuscated Python. When you deobfuscate it, it's basically a downloader that goes and fetches some more Python, which is super scrambulated, so it's not at all obvious what it does. The idea is essentially that the crooks get to install whatever they like, because that downloader goes to a website that the crooks control, and they can put anything they want up for download. And it looks as though the primary malware that the crooks wanted to deploy, although they could have installed anything, was a data-stealing Trojan based on, I think, a project known as WASP, which basically goes after interesting files on your computer, notably including things like crypto coin wallets, stored credit cards, and importantly, you've probably guessed where this is going, your Discord password, your Discord credentials. And we know why crooks love social media and instant messaging passwords, because when they get your password and they can reach out directly to your friends and your family and your, your work colleagues in a closed group, it's so much more believable that they must get a much better success rate in luring in new victims than they do with spray and pray stuff on email or SMS. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. That is still kind of developing. But uh, some good news, finally. This uh, crypto ROM scam, which is a crypto romance scam, we've got some arrests, some big time arrests, right? Yes, this was announced by the US Department of Justice. Seven sites associated with so-called crypto ROM scammers taken down. And that report also links to the fact that I think 11 people were recently arrested in the US. Now, crypto ROM, that's a name that Sophos Labs researchers gave to this particular cybercrime scheme, because as you say, it kind of marries the approach used by romance scammers, i.e. look you up on a dating site, create a fake profile, become buddies with you, with cryptocurrency scamming. Instead of saying, hey, I want you to fall in love with me, let's get married, now send me money for the visa, kind of scam, the crooks go, well, maybe we're not going to become an item, but we're still good chums, have I got an investment opportunity for you? So it suddenly feels like it's coming from someone you can trust. It's a scam that involves talking you into installing an off-market app. Even if you have an iPhone, it's still in development. Like, it's so new. You're so important. You're, you're, right, <laughs> yeah. you're right at the core of it. It's still in development. So sign up for the test flight, the beta program. Or they'll go, oh, we're only publishing it to people who join our business. So give us mobile device manager, MDM control over your phone, and then you can install this app. And don't tell anyone about it. It's not going to be in the app store. You're special. And of course, the app looks like a cryptocurrency trading app, and it's backed by sweet-looking graphs that just strangely keep going up, Doug. Mm -hmm. Like your investments never really go down, but it's all a pack of lies. And then when you want your money out, well, typical Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme trick, sometimes they'll let you take out a little bit of money you're testing. So you withdraw a bit and you get it back. Of course, they're just giving you the money that you already put in back or some of it. Yeah. And then your investments are going up and then they're all over you. Golly, imagine if you hadn't withdrawn that money. Why don't you put that money back in? Hey, we'll even loan you some more money. We'll put some in with you. And why not get your chums in? Because something big's coming. And so you put in the money. Something big happens. Like the price sheets up and you're going, wow, I'm so glad I reinvested the money that I withdrew. 
and you're still thinking the fact that I could have withdrawn it must mean these people are legit. Of course they're not. It's just a bigger pack of lies than it was at the start. And then when you finally think, ooh, I better cash out, suddenly there's all sorts of trouble. Well, there's a tax, Doug. There's a government withholding tax. And you go, okay, so I'm going to have 20% chopped off the top. Oh, but actually, no, it's not. Technically, it's not a withholding tax, which is where they just take the money out of the sum and give you the rest. Actually, your account's frozen. So the government can't withhold the money. You have to pay in the tax. Then you get the whole amount back. Oh, God. You should smell a rat at this point. Yeah. But they're all over you. They're pressuring you. They're wheedling, if not wheedling. They're telling you, well, you could get into trouble, like the government may be all over you. And so people are then putting in the 20%. And then, as I wrote, I hope not too rudely, game over. Insert coin to begin new game. In fact, you may then get contacted afterwards by somebody who just miraculously dug goes, hey, have you been scammed by CryptoRon scammers? <laughs> well, a, yeah. well, I'm investigating and I can help you get the money back. It's a terrible thing to be in because it all starts with the ROM part. So they're not after a romance, but they are after enough of a friendship that you feel you can trust them. So you're actually getting into something special. That's why your friends and family weren't invited. We've talked about this story uh, several times before, including the uh, advice, which is in the article here. The dismount in the advice column is uh, listen openly to your friends and family if they try to warn you. This is psychological warfare, as it were. Indeed. And second last is also one to remember. Don't be fooled because you go to a scammer's website and it looks just like the real deal. And you think, golly, could they really afford to pay professional web designers but if you look at how much money these guys are making, A, yes, they could, and B, they don't even really need to. There are plenty of tools out there that build high-quality, visually-friendly websites with real-time graphs, real-time transactions, magical-looking, beautiful web forms. Exactly. It's actually really hard to make a bad-looking website nowadays. You have to try extra hard. It'll have the HTTPS certificate. It'll have a legitimate enough-looking domain name. And of course, in this case, coupled with an app that your friends can't check out for you by downloading themselves off the app store and going, what on earth were you thinking? Because it's like a, a secret special app through super special channels. That just makes it easier for the crooks to deceive you by looking more than good enough. So take care, folks. Take care. And uh, let's uh, stick on the subject of crackdowns. This is a, uh, another big crackdown. This story is really intriguing to me, so I'm interested to hear how you unravel it. This is a voice scamming site, which was called iSpoof, and I'm shocked that it was allowed to operate. This is not a dark website. This was, this was on the regular web. I guess if all your site is doing is we'll offer you voice over IP services with added cool value that includes you can set up your own calling numbers. If they're not openly saying the primary goal of this is to do cybercrime, then there may be no legal obligation for the hosting company to take the site down. And if you are hosting it yourself and you are the crook, I guess it's quite difficult. It took a court order in the end, yeah. uh, acquired by the FBI, I believe, executed by the Department of Justice to go and claim those domains and put up this domain has been seized. So it was quite a lengthy operation, as I understand, just trying to get behind this. 
problem here is it just made it really, really easy for you to start up a scamming service where when you called somebody, their phone would pop up with the name of their high street bank that they themselves had entered into their phone contact list off the bank's own website. Because sadly, there is little or no authentication in the caller ID or calling line identification protocol. Those numbers that pop up before you answer the call, they are no better than hints, Doug. But unfortunately, people take them as a kind of gospel truth. It says it's the bank. How could anybody forge that? Must be the bank calling me. Not necessarily. If you look at the number of calls that were placed, was it three and a half million in the UK alone? 10 million throughout Europe. Yeah. I think it was three and a half million calls they placed. 350,000 of those were answered and then lasted more than a minute, which suggests the person's kind of beginning to believe the whole spoofing. So transfer funds to the wrong account, read out your two-factor authentication code, let us help you with your technical problems, let's start by installing TeamViewer, whatever it is. And even being invited by the crooks, check the number if you don't believe me. That leads us to a question that I had the whole time reading this article, and uh, it dovetails with nicely with our reader comment for the week. On this article, reader Mon comments, the telcos should be getting a fair share of the blame for allowing spoofing on their network. So in that spirit, Paul, is there anything telcos can actually do to stop this? Intriguingly, the next commenter, and thanks, John, for this comment, said, I wish you'd mentioned two things called stir and shaken. These are American initiatives, because you guys love your backronyms, don't you? Like the CAN Spam Act. So mm-hmm. STIR is Secure Telephone Identity Revisited. And SHAKEN apparently stands for, <laughs> don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger, Doug. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Signature-based handling of asserted information using tokens. <laughs> so it's, it's basically like saying... We finally got used to using TLS, HTTPS, for websites. It's not perfect, but at least it provides some measure of you can verify the certificate if you want. And it stops just anybody pretending to be anyone anytime they like. The problem is that these are just initiatives as far as I know. We have the technology to do this, at least for internet telephony. But look at how long it took us to do something as simple as getting HTTPS on almost all of the websites in the world. There was a huge backlash against it. And ironically, it wasn't coming from the service providers. It was coming from people going, well, I run a small website. Why should I have to bother about this? Why should I have to care? So I think it may be many years yet before there is any strong identity associated with incoming phone calls. Okay, so it could take a while. But as you say, we have uh, chosen our acronyms, which is very important first step. So we've got that out of the way. And uh, we'll see if this takes shape eventually. So thank you, Mon, for sending that in. If you have an interesting story, comment or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amoth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay. Secure. Secure.